This episode is brought to you by Too Faced Cosmetics and Better Than Sex Mascara. The name literally says it all. This mascara is that good. There is a formula for anyone and everyone available in original, waterproof, and chocolate that thickens, lengthens, and curls to give you all the drama and volume. Or try the new Naturally Better Than Sex. It has a 98% naturally derived formula. Shop Too Faced Better Than Sex Mascara at Sephora today. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Looking to refresh your closet, home, or beauty routine this spring? Walmart's got all the stylish goods in one stop. From chic new looks and the latest makeup to quality furniture and tableware. Go to walmart.com slash now trending. That's walmart.com slash now trending for the hottest fashion, home, and beauty finds. Your style at Walmart. Welcome to the Radio Times podcast with me, Kellyanne Taylor. In this series, I sit down on the Radio Times sofa with a different celebrity guest every week to talk all things telly. What do they watch? Where do they watch it? And who do they watch with? Each week, we glimpse into my guest's life as seen through the prism of TV and from the vantage point of their sofas. We also delve into their own glittering careers on screen. This week's guest is the comedian and presenter Sarah Pascoe. Pascoe and her dog Mouse join us this week to talk about the challenges of being a stand-up and the difficulty of turning down work. I did QI when the baby was five weeks old and my agent had said, don't you want a bit more time? Because, you know, you're really, you're, 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 you're swollen and you're mad and leaky and all of those kind of things. And I was like so afraid that if I missed one QI, and I've been doing it since Series K, that they wouldn't ask next year, that I did it and was mad. Plus, we talk about how comedy has evolved and which theme tune panel show makes her nervous. Sarah Pascoe, welcome to the Radio Times podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And we're joined by you and your beautiful doggy. Yeah, my dog's uh, refusing to leave the room, even though I've said to him, <laughs> it's a podcast, you have to be very <laughs> quiet. So I hope he's going to be professional. I hope so too. Best behaviour, cute little hound. Um, what is the view from your sofa? My sofa? Oh, there's so, so, so much mess. <laughs> so much mess. Look, I don't want to make parenthood sound unattractive <laughs> and it's a it's like a it's like a sisyphus with the rock up a big mountain except it's dried banana and toys and everyone else is rubbish and then you're literally looking at it going I've been tidying this room since six in the morning <laughs> and still there's lego everywhere and books and um it's mess now that you're a parent does that mean that you're watching a lot of children's tv unfortunately I would like to watch it because then it'd be like, ah, oh, I can chill out, Paddington's on. But my son gets up and walks away. So no offence to children's television, but he's not. He's only 13 months, so maybe it kicks in later on. But I was really told, you know, like, give them an iPad. 
they'll be quiet but he that's he's not he's not into it so far what do you watch on tv oh gosh well i really love procedurals so most recently had the final series of happy valley which was um amazing and you know there's always a danger when you really love a show that how can they possibly do what you really need them to do or would like them to do with the final series and oh my gosh I think it was so perfect and so suspenseful and truthful so I loved that and then I last night I watched the end of Endeavour which is another sort of the the early Morse one on ITV and that's ended its series as well and I found the ending very confusing and I had to google to find out what happened at the end (laughs) because I didn't know I've had so much buzz around that show, both of those shows. Yes, and yeah. they've both gone out apparently with a bang, although maybe a tad of confusion. Yeah, I think it's my fault, not Endeavour's <laughs> fault. I've never watched the original Inspector Morse, so the ending is a reference to that. So I uh, was like, who's that old guy in the car? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's Inspector Morse. Oh, okay. Now okay. it makes sense. What a good ending. <laughs> It's finally clicked into place. Yeah. Do you watch a lot of comedy? I Well, I really love Would I Lie to You. That's the only show that I've been on that I still love, love watching. And recently, because I'm on tour, it's really nice to have episodes of things. And I realised they've had a whole entire new series and it was all on iPlayer. And it, I, it, it makes me so happy, the fun that people are having yeah. and the silliness. And I guess also you can play along it's at home, you know, do I believe them? Do I not believe them? All of that. So it's just such a fantastic format. And there are very few shows where you still have friends who are working together series after series. And I hope that they never, ever try and interfere with that. When you've been on a panel show, does it then skew your your viewing of it? It can sometimes because I always loved Mock the Week. And then I went on Mock the Week, and this isn't Mock the Week's fault, but then the tune started to make me nervous. So when I would try and watch other, even like in the last couple of series, I had friends who were on for the first time and I would watch to support them. And the theme tune would make me nervous. Like, oh my God, have I got all my notes? Do I know all my stuff for scenes I'd like to see? What am I going to say about Boris Johnson? And it's like, calm down. You haven't been on that show for six years. You haven't read a newspaper. It's going to be fine. But I still, that, that theme tune, and have I got news for you? I start to panic. Like someone's going to ask me my opinion about a politician I haven't heard of. <laughs> it's me doing this podcast when someone tells me about the TV that they used to watch. And I'm thinking, <sighs> oh, yeah. Never heard of it. No. Um, yeah. Is there a snack and drink of choice that you turn to when you're watching telly? Mm, interesting. Uh, I really like honey and lemon, like uh, as a hot drink. It's really, it's really delicious, actually. And because sometimes you can't have caffeine late at night and you mm. want a hot drink. You could have decaf tea, but even that feels a bit wrong. But I like hot drink, hot drink with TV, especially because quite often we're trying to go to bed relatively early because of getting up so early and we get ups in the night. So it's not rock and roll like it used to be a glass of red wine. No way. (laughs) It's, um, yeah, it's honey and lemon or maybe a chamomile tea. (laughs) Okay, I want to throw it back to your first ever TV memory. Mm, Of watching TV? Yeah. Okay, well, this is going to make me sound like I had a really strange childhood. My parents, but maybe it was more my dad, didn't want us to watch adverts. So my earliest TV memory was that we, if adverts were on, they got turned off 
or we weren't allowed to watch ITV, we would just watch BBC. And obviously this is back when there were, you know, four channels in the olden days. So all the, I could make up loads of programs now and you just wouldn't know what I was talking about <laughs> when the, the wigwam boomtastics were on every Friday night. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so I remember that. And I also remember we weren't really into TV until maybe when we were at secondary school coming home to watch Grange Hill. Have you oh, heard of that program? Yes, yeah. Okay. Yeah. There we go. That was on for ages. Or Biker Grove, which was where Anton Deck came from. So yeah. <laughs> so so maybe me and my sister then would have watched TV a bit more. But again, I don't remember lots of cartoons very fondly or anything like that. We were very much like playing outdoors and stuff. A very good organic. Childhood. Yeah, very wholesome, wholesome childhood. Yeah. Yeah, maybe that's where your son gets it from. He's like, no to the iPad. Yeah, yeah. I just want to play with the hound. Yeah, he's <laughs> like, let me just yeah look at a tree. <laughs> <laughs> what were you like as a child and when did you get the idea or the inkling that you wanted to be on TV? Well, I actually came up with my plan to be on TV when I was 14, which is precocious. But it's because I was very unpopular at school. And I thought if I could get on TV and sort of on a talent competition show how amazingly talented I thought I was, that I'd get people at school to change their mind about me. So that is really the, my origin story. And that sort of convoluted, my stand-up show at the moment is about, I auditioned for Michael Barrymore to be on Barrymore's My Kind of People, which is another show before your time. And it's, but that, that was a very proto-talent show competition before there was judges or winners, just everyone had a go. And then... Um, so I, first of all that was that was singing and then I decided I want to be an actor I tried to be an actor for a long time and then failing as an actor became stand-up comedy and then that's my job now so it worked out really well that did work out incredibly yeah. well I am um, in your series that we're going to come on to talk about you mentioned that you were a tour guide in London yes. yeah tell me more well tour guiding is a summer only job for most people because obviously okay. you get lots more tourists. So it's a really good mm. job for out-of-work actors or students. But when I was doing it, traffic wasn't as bad in London. So you'd do three tours a day and there'd be two hours each. But then when I left, Mouse, sorry, he's barking. It's because <laughs> my husband's gone to the park without taking him. And he's like, I, I, I chose the wrong room. <laughs> I chose the wrong room to say, sorry, Mouse. Um, so yeah, so the tours were two hours each, but now they're three hours each. So you don't get a break in between. And that's when I stopped being a tour guide. But essentially, you learn as much as you can about all of the buildings and the historical periods of London. And then you point at it and show it to tourists. <laughs> like, so do you, do you have now like a wealth of knowledge about London? I have a wealth of passion for London because I understood it better. And I didn't know anything about history before I did tour guiding. And then I understood a bit more how things intersected and worked and having things like architecture and who made things and what they mean and what they're inspired by explained to you gives you an appreciation for them. So you don't just go, there's a yellow building, that one's tall. <laughs> like, to actually go like, this is inspired by, um, what would it be inspired by? Uh, the Elgin marbles and uh, yes, those kind of things. Like when you see things engraved on buildings. So, and in terms of knowledge, now what I've got is half knowledge. Whereas if you and I were in London, I'd go, look at that doorway. That doorway was head. Was it Henry V? Oh, I can't remember. I think he either went to school there or Samuel Pepys died there. Oh, God. And then you go, what an interesting fact. Thanks for telling me, Sarah. I play a very fun game um, with my partner when we go on holiday. And uh, it involves me 
saying to him, we'll go on a on a tour guide yeah. and then we go to the pub afterwards mm. and you have to have remembered as much information as possible <gasps> and you ask questions and if they get it wrong, they have to drink, which makes it sound like we don't have that much fun on holiday. But no, I that's promise. really fun. It's a right hoot. That's a really fun holiday. And um, you should definitely do that in London because that's how you train to be a tour guide. You just go round and round listening to other people's tours and then you just remember from it what you think's interesting. And so occasionally the teacher will say, now you get up and do us five minutes. So it's just that without drinking. <laughs> so basically I've just brought alcohol into uh, training to be a professional. Yeah, he's just spiced it up, that's all. <laughs> I want to ask how, so you said you worked as, a, as an actor mm. and wasn't so successful, mm. but then you found stand-up comedy. And I know that uh, you've really unpicked this word quote-unquote successful Mm. um and I wonder if you kind of had any thoughts on that through your work because the way that I see it I feel like success is something that we think is so um boxable a term Mm. you know we say oh when I hit this many Mm. uh likes on my podcast or this interview or this uh, and the goalpost then when you hit there I don't feel like you ever feel a success the goalpost is always this is the tricky thing with dopamine which is that the amazing and very enjoyable um sort of neurotransmitter you get when you're working towards something uh, towards a goal it doesn't hang around when you get the thing so for actors you get a job occasionally you get a phone call and you have this massive like huge overdose of something and then the next day you feel hollow <laughs> and you think what like how does it only last a day how has it already evaporated which is why which is why the people who are really healthy within creative competitive careers are constantly, have I improved? Am I pushing myself? Am I outside of my comfort zone? What do I think of the work I'm creating? Am I working hard enough? And they they find validation in more sensible constants, which are still a journey. And you're still like, if you're trying, to, if you're thinking of retiring at 65 or 70, you want to be peaking near there and going, that was my best work. That's my best craft. Yeah. And that's nothing to do with popularity, money unfortunately but they are the two things right at the beginning that prove to other people oh I'm doing well you know I can say to my mum this my job's going well that she doesn't understand because guess what I got paid for this or guess how many views I got so it's translating that into something meaningful and sort of constant Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest but let me play devil's advocate here let's see so no that's a good thing uh (laughs) <laughs> That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. And I guess with that kind of culture, because of capitalism and the way our society is structured, really that is how we define success and it is oh, how yeah. we define worth. Yeah, and absolutely. And I do fall into it. When I get, um, I mean, this happens to all comedians, but um, I'm very sensitive about it. When I get messages telling me I'm very bad at comedy, in my head I go, well, I'm a millionaire. So how can that be true? <laughs> Oh, really? Tell my millions of pounds. <laughs> because I fall back on the capitalism sense of there's not a single person in the world that can say that isn't a value. You can say, yep. I am valueless, but look at my bank account. I have value. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I quite literally have economic value. <laughs> yeah, literally, provable. Yeah, but even, you know, do you remember like in um, Sapiens when... Um, he was saying about Osama bin Laden hates everything that America stands for, but he knows the value of a dollar. It's like, 
Osama bin Laden hated my comedy, but he knows how much money I've got in the bank. I love where this podcast has gone. It's gone <laughs> all over the place yeah, already. I yeah. <laughs> Can I ask? Okay, this sounds like a weird question, but I was thinking about it earlier. And the comedy scene from... So I was listening to you on Off Menu. And I was thinking that the comedy scene from an outside perspective seems very much like you all know each other. Yeah. And I was wondering, is that because, right, twofold, mm. is that because you do the same kind of uh, gig circuit, you know, Edinburgh Fringe, um, and then panel shows, I guess, mm. you're also meeting the same people. So there's that. But then I also wanted to know, does that then make, when you're starting out, it feel like quite an exclusive club? Mm. I'm really lucky. I don't think anyone started out with better people than I started out with. I think it was, um, there was a confluence of people. So definitely what you're saying is absolutely correct. Mostly the gigging, like the circuit of gigging. You're new, which means most of you are doing five minutes, 10 minutes max, 10 of you on a bill. And uh, you're all enthusiastic. You all stay for a drink afterwards and there's travel. So, you know, it's coaches or cars or train journeys so you have how the gig has gone standing at the back of the gig watching each other then the travel back to London and you get to know people really well and obviously there's no routine for seeing them everyone just turns up but I started at a time where there were suddenly all of these more panel shows and places for people to do comedy and so it felt like a very generous time it felt like uh, and it felt like everyone everyone I started with was really good and was getting these opportunities. So people were happy and generous and to each other. So I remember doing a gig and it would have been with like Josh Widdicombe and Brett Goldstein, who's now like this massive American writer and producer. And Stuart Lee was the headliner, who obviously is still, you know, a comedian's comedian and so respected. And Stuart Lee said, when did this start happening? And I was like, what? And he went, all oh, the comedians standing at the back, clapping each other and laughing. <laughs> but it's because we all really liked each other. And it hadn't occurred to any of us to be like bitchy. Or, but th- what had preceded us was a circuit of very, very competition with very little rewards for very few people. So p- they had to be the best on the bill. They were always going on going, you know, I need to smash it harder than the person who smashed it before me. Whereas my generation felt like we were a bit gentler of like, it was more like a play, yeah. like let's all have a lovely time. <laughs> so the audience enjoys it. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and I feel so grateful for that now. And then now I, yeah, everyone's so successful. You never get to see anyone. Like on the last interview <laughs> I did, they were just talking about Joel Domit and they were like, I, sp- I spoke to Joel last week. I was like, Oh, how's Joel? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. How's he doing? Yeah, how Why? is he? Yeah. How's his yeah. new program? <laughs> <laughs> but, I also, okay, so also with comedy, and I mean, so speaking in terms of stand-up, but also you had your own comedy series on BBC Two, Mm. Out of Her Mind, which was loosely based on your own life. And I guess stand-up requires you to kind of present parts of yourself or talk about parts of your life. You know, there's an intimacy Mm. there that's created when you have stand-up. And also with this programme, you then play a version of yourself. And I wonder... You know, you you once said in a Radio Times interview, stand-up is this way of being hugely introspective but giving your soul out to everyone at the same mm. time. Does it ever become difficult to have parts of yourself that you're showing other people and then perhaps receiving criticism or, or just having people weigh in with their opinion? I think even just being a human being, we're all quite inconsistent. So something can be really true at one point in your life or career and then not be true later. And here's the thing about stand-up is because it's so authored, you give an opinion, you know, six years ago, 
say for instance, and I've never have done this, so it's okay. Say I gave a very strong opinion about what should happen in the Middle East, for instance. And you could now bring that up in this interview and go, well, you had that routine about Palestine. And I'm I'm a completely different person who's probably read different things, met different people, would never do that routine now. And and in a way you have to go, yeah, but I also don't want to apologize for that person because I don't feel like I am that person or, um, and it's the true with the, in, out of her mind. I was at a stage of my life where I was so content with being or not content I just got my head around the fact that I wasn't going to be able to have children and that was infertile and just wasn't going to happen I was about to hit 40 which is like my line in the sand and I really like lent into that for the show like being the own part of the the own central character of your life da 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 and then like a year later had a baby so people who did feel close to my narrative were like well who are you then (laughs) and it's like oh sorry people are really complex and we have lots of things going on and when I was infertile, I was really defensive. And now, sorry, I'm a mummy and I do mum jokes. <laughs> like, it changed really fast. So it's not like I feel, I don't ever feel attacked. But what I'm aware is, me as a person, I'm an oversharer. So I became an oversharing comic. There are comics who are really good at keeping certain parts of themselves or them, their lives private. I actually really like sharing. And so I'm, cu- I'm really comfortable with it. And I'm really comfortable with sometimes just the discussion that has to happen afterwards. I saw, um, I watched Hannah Gadsby's Netflix thing yeah. a few years ago and I thought it was amazing because what she does is, you know, it's the kind of film of two halves where yeah. the first part is her telling you all these jokes and then the second part is her kind of unpicking that actually she's she's talking about some pretty horrific stuff that's happened to her and she's trivialising them and making mm. them a joke, which has kind of been, you know, the basis of her career. Yes. Anyway, it's really beautiful. It's yes. really powerful. But I wonder if you ever feel like that, if you ever feel like sometimes you're picking fun or if you're so close to the content that it can be upsetting. Comedy is flippant. And you have to be okay to talk about it. So Nanette, that Hannah Gadsby show, was really interesting because what she said was, I am not okay. And you thought I was okay because I made jokes. And that's why joking is a a defense mechanism as well as a coping mechanism. And lots of comics had very different responses because there are people who've been through a variety of traumas who think of comedy as a very useful, healthy tool for them. And Hannah Gadsby said it's an unhealthy tool. So lots of people had their own um, processing of that. The other day, I was heckled in my show. I've got a very silly bit about Prince Harry, very silly, and an angry man in Northampton shouted, why aren't you talking about Prince Andrew? And um, I had to sort of go through it on stage because, it, I, it, I, you know, it's not a quick quip, but I can't be flippant about what Prince Andrew has done. I can't, I don't want to be flippant about people who are like Prince Andrew and the power dynamic. And, and, you know, I think the courts are the place for Prince Andrew and comedy is where we can make fun of Prince Harry because he's not, you know, (laughs) he's been a bit of a wally. It's a completely different situation, but it was, it it was underlined for me again. That's the comedy that feels really comfortable to everyone. We're all in a safe place Mm. and some, some things shouldn't be minimized. Yeah. And I think it's so interesting what you were saying earlier about the accountability of people on the internet in the, sa- in the sense that, you know, 30 years ago, I mean, now even stuff isn't safe that was pre-internet. You know, you can mm. find a, yeah. a video mm. and then that can be posted online. But I guess with it has come that kind of whole conversation about council culture and what people are held accountable to. But with the internet, 
it, I guess it's also brought some really positives to comedy because it can give you your own platform, own, like social media can give you your own platform to connect with fans, to have more of a global presence rather than just kind of local community. So how do you think the the changing of the internet has changed both your kind of comedic career but also your comedy. And I don't mean mm. that in terms of content. Yes. I mean that more in terms of how you've evolved as a comedian. I, I'm definitely one of the dinosaurs in comedy now. And I'm surprised how quickly I became a dinosaur because I honestly thought I was a meteorite. I started <laughs> out like as a woman going into a male-dominated profession, seeing them being like, mm, they need to get with the times. And then it, so quickly it became like, oh, my jokes are all too long and I'm not on TikTok. And I don't know how to put words at the side of the screen. on my, like, Even if I video my shows, I don't know how to like, carve them up. So I very quickly become out of date. But comedy is really democratic. And that's what I love about it. And obviously we will have to fear about it because there's no loyalty. There's no like, okay, you earn 60 grand a year now. You will always earn 60 grand a year. Your family and mortgage are safe. If the audiences don't want to come to see you anymore, they stop yeah. and your income stops. The amazing thing about the internet is that so many people, and it is, it is democratic. You can't say there isn't fairness to, I mean, I guess there's some costs and overheads with the equipment, but people can do it on their phones and basically everyone has a phone. So you can't, you can't argue with people who have become popular because it's because yeah. people liked them and could find them easily. And that's never been possible across the world ever, has it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so true. I mean, on that, each show needs to be just as good as the last, mm. each tour, each uh, special, each comedy series. But then I guess also when you're self-employed or freelance or, you know, a comedian, you are your own brand. And I, I mean, you know, you've just had a child and I'm sure, you know, you've you've got to think of maternity leave mm. and things like that. Does that then become very hard economically to say no to projects because you feel like you have to do it to not miss an opportunity? I think there's a balance of those. I think the advantage of having some money in the bank, I've already bragged about it. <laughs> Here it comes up again. Sorry. <laughs> I love that yeah. you call yourself newly wealthy. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's my yes. favourite yeah. thing. That's why I'm so tacky about it, because I can't believe it's <laughs> happened. And also, because I don't like it when people pretend they're not. It's like, oh, mm. um, so... So the advantage of that is what you don't have is, oh, I don't have next month's rent unless I do this job. But I think what you always fear is if I don't say yes to this now, what if they don't ask me again? Um, I, di I did QI when the baby was five weeks old and my agent had said, don't you want a bit more time? Because, you know, you're really, you're, 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 you're swollen and you're mad and leaky and all of those kind of things. And I was like so afraid that if I missed one QI, and I've been doing it since Series K that they wouldn't ask next year, that I did it and was mad. So, so it's much more fear of missing out and not being yeah. part of the gang or, yeah, the slow descent of, oh, that was my time on TV. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to happen. That was my time on TV. Oh, at some point it will, though. At some point it will. And I'll just have to go, I was really lucky to get to do those things. And, you know, it's, there's other people doing them now. Well, the thing that you are currently doing on television, which yeah. is fabulous. Okay, yeah. You know, so before she starts crying and saying, I'm past <laughs> it, Kellyanne. <laughs> also, I think you'll just be one of those people who just decide when you're done and yeah, then maybe, walk away. Yeah. You're not going to get kicked okay, off, I promise. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about Woman on Earth. So in it, you go on an adventure to find out about these jobs that are on the verge of extinction. 
And my first and foremost question is, how do you choose the destinations? Oh, I have nothing to do with the choosing. I have absolutely no power. I think <laughs> I, I think my name is in the title. I definitely, I'm the only person in it. But no, do I ever get an input? If I start to get too opinionated, I get CC'd out of emails. <laughs> suddenly, <laughs> suddenly, I just get sent my flights and I, oh, okay, we're going to Denmark. <laughs> Uh, I've pitched hard for Egypt because I want to go to Egypt. I'd love to go to a Polynesian island. Are we going there? No. (laughs) You know what? Just keep working on it. Series three. Okay. They heard it here first. Are there any trends that you're seeing in terms of what jobs? So what I found really interesting, so I watched the Mm. first episode of series two, which is set in Greece. And um, the trends that I noticed just from the kind of jobs that you were doing there is that a lot of this seems to be connected to declining populations, mm-hmm. economic problems, religious changes, um, climate change. Climate change is massive and it's diversifying the show enough so that it's not always just going, did you know <laughs> water is evaporating because the planet is heating and we're all a little bit screwed, even this man making knives. It's like, <laughs> like every job would be also in 30 years, this house might not be here or, you know, will any of us have jobs if robots are doing them? So um, it's, yeah, it's finding different things, but yeah, definitely what you've identified are the trends, young people not wanting to stay where they, they're needing more opportunities, wanting to do things with computers, with uh, they can earn more money, those kind of things, which means leaving what looks like an idyllic place to to live and work, but to go to cities and then you have yeah. declining, yeah, older populations sort of str- struggling. And then and tourism, tourism is a massive thing as well because where, where tourists go, there is always an influx of money, but also the tourists might want certain things and not other things, which is really yeah. shaping. And I mean, even from the pandemic, you can see what happens when tourists can't go yeah. there or decide yeah. no. Yeah. There's that bell. I don't, I don't know mm. if you've seen this, but it's like the tourism bell and basically like tourists... People locate an area, yeah. they go there, they enjoy the area, then slowly it becomes more mm. popular, so then the local population start relying on it. Oh, yeah. And then it hits a certain peak, and then from there it's down, oh, because okay. then people find somewhere new, uh, um, I see. people want something different. And also, and then, and by then it's like the tourists have sort of like... Become the main source of income. Yes, but also made things a bit tackier and a bit not as nice for local families, but better for if you want to yeah. eat burgers on the beach, kind of, yeah. But it's fascinating. And when you go to the monastery in Greece, you really see that kind of, they've become somewhat reliant on that money, but then it's actually taken yeah. away from the real source. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. And also, this, yeah, the idea of like, okay, I'm a monk, I want to be completely by myself to concentrate on my relationship with God. But hundreds of people are going to come every day to come and watch me do it. <laughs> Yeah. Was there a moment from this series that you took that you've kind of walked away and that was your favourite or the best moment? I had lots of best moments. I often feel very, very lucky to be there. Sometimes I feel unlucky. Um, I had to tattoo someone, which I found terrifying and just could not stop shaking and felt so, so bad. How did it look after (laughs) someone someone else said to come in and finish it. (laughs) Okay. So not great. And, um, I had to dance in a square and I just hate it when they make me dance because I'm, I know I'm a performer for my job, but I really don't like dancing publicly. It really, it's really out of my comfort zone. I feel really silly and strangers stop and video you on their phones and I just I really don't like it. Uh, so they were my least favourite. So I started with the least favourite. Then what I love, I love meeting people. I love 
I always think, oh, they make roofs out of seaweed. That sounds boring. And then I go and have the best time of my life with amazing people who are passionate about what they do. And it's so skilled and they're so generous with teaching me. And so, yeah, I, I, I always just, I love getting to know the contributors. Yeah. What do you think is the aim of this show in terms of for you? Why do you make it? When they pitched it to me at the BBC, they said they wanted a show that was for people who like QI and like clever shows. And it's a new way of learning about a country. So when you look at jobs, you're learning about the economy, the culture and the history And we're looking at what could happen in the future. And that's for me why it's so perfect, because I really feel like I've learned a bit about those countries when I've gone there. And I hope that when people watching, they go, oh, I now know this about, yeah, about uh, Greek Greek culture or or Danish culture, especially with Jordan. It's like it's a really, really complicated history with various different sort of um, settlers moving through it. And so it's really great to be able to share that through something that's also, you know, quite fun. I thought one of my favourite things is when you start the show, you say that, you've, you know, since the first series, you've, mm. you've got married, you've had a, had a baby, um, and that this now, these 14-hour days, feels like a break. Yeah. <laughs> I was just yeah. like, oh my yeah. gosh, you poor woman. Yeah. <laughs> poor all women, actually. Oh, poor poor women. women. <laughs> yeah, because I, I often used to think, Oh God! And there's other women that just have to, you know, go go full term back to work, you know, because because people do have to go back to work. So at least mine, at least at my job, people go and get coffees for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's so nice. Is it not hard being away? Or no, not really. Oh, it was awful actually. Um, cause I took them, him with me. My husband came with me on the first one and then had such a terrible time he wouldn't come to the others. So it was really really hard. But it was one of those things. And this will be, you know, common to all parents. It was either don't do it or do it and it's really hard. And because I love the show so much, I just didn't I just didn't want to I just didn't want to do the sensible thing, which is saying I've got a four month old baby, of course I can't come. I was like, we'll make it work. And you did, it's a great show. Yeah. But Sarah Pascoe, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. And my dog was quiet in the end, wasn't he? he I was, told you, he was a good he boy. Gorgeous. <laughs> he 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 loves yeah. TV. Oh, we know. Yeah, he does. He loves it. <laughs> If you enjoyed this episode, you might like to listen to our conversation with James May or Louis Theroux. Both can be found by scrolling back in our feed. Please remember to rate, review and subscribe. You can also write in at podcast at radiotimes.com. Listener.